You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to adameve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item so you get one free item for penis havers one free item for vulva havers one free item for couples and then you also get six free movies from the adameve.com website you can get your favorite porn or an educational film i love free movies they're so awesome this is such a great deal and then on top of that you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to adameve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in darkpod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to adameve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language, 
content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability story. I'm, of course, your sexy, seated, disabled host, Andrew Gerza, and I am so excited to bring you this show on the first official show of our brand new podcast network. Holy wow, friends, we're on the Wheels on the Ground network. Holy goodness me, our own disability podcast network. And I am so excited for this and so excited to have my own podcast network that I can help disabled creators have their own shows and have their own ideas and build their own platforms and that's really cool. So I hope you love what we're going to put out on the Wheels in the Ground Network. I kind of just decided the other day to bite the bullet and do it. So if you are a disabled creator and want to do a podcast but need some help, need some ideas brainstorming, need some... You want a place to put your disability-themed podcast, you can put it on the Wheels in the Ground Network because we're all about disability here. Anyway, I'm so excited about this, but let's get started with Disability After Dark today. First things first, of course, I want to give a shout out to some of the awesome, lovely folks that keep a bright light shining on this show each and every month by putting their hard-earned dollars down. I thank you so much for that. This show means so much. And as we enter our fourth year in production on our brand new podcast network, that means even more for me. Thank you so much for your support. And today, I want to give a sexy shout-out to a Patreon supporter named Matthew Nelson. Matthew, I tried really hard to come up with a sexy pun for you, but I'll just say that I'm going to say Matthew rhymes with thank you. So thank you, Matthew, for your $5 a month pledge to keep this show going. means a whole bunch. And uh, thank you, thank you. And what that means, Matthew, is that you get the show one day early on our Patreon feed, and you also get the show completely ad-free. So if you want to pledge like Matthew did, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as high as $5 a month or more to help keep the show going. Also, the show helps me as a disabled creator just have some pocket change, which means a lot. So thank you so, so much. But now, on to the show. On the show today, I am the most excited to let you know that I am speaking with a new friend. Someone new who wrote in to me a couple of weeks ago and was like, I love your podcast, particularly the episode that we did with Terry and John. I think episode 202, I sat down with Terry and John to talk about spinal cord injury, autonomic dysreflexia, and a little bit about their sex life. And then a couple of weeks later, I got an email from someone named Darren Hoffman, who is an, let me get this right. He is an assistant professor and vice chair of educational programs at the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at the University of Iowa, 
Carver College of Medicine, who sent me this beautiful email about how important the show was, how it's transformed his relationship, thinking about the anatomy and the body and all those things. So we were talking more over email, and I was like, well, why don't you come on the show and talk to me a little bit more about anatomy and the body and how we can talk about the disabled anatomy and how, you know, being a an assistant professor at this university, how are you, how are you, what are you doing to combat ableism? So we had a really cool conversation about that. We talk a little bit about the ways that Professor Hoffman is using his expertise as a professor in anatomy to talk about the disabled body, to talk about differences, and also some of the things he's learning about the disabled body and some of his own biases around ableism in that space. We also, I give Darren the opportunity to talk to me about my body and to learn from me and to ask me questions about my disabled body and my experiences as a disabled person and the kind of things that I would like to to let people know about the disabled body. And then we talk more about how he is imparting knowledge to future physicians around ableism. We talk about a lot of stuff here, but it was a really fun interview. It was different than what I normally do on the show. It was nice to sit down with someone and kind of talk about academic ableism and all that stuff. And I was just absolutely excited and honored to have him there. So without further ado, I'm going to sit down and talk anatomy with my new friend, assistant professor, Darren Hoffman, right here on Disability After Dark. Darren Hoffman, hello. Hey, Andrew, how are you? Good. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Really, really, it was really, really nice to actually um, get a chance to talk to you because you sent me a really sweet email a couple of weeks ago that was like, I listened to your show, I listened to your episode with Terry and John about spinal cord injury, injury and autonomic dysreflexia, and it, it changed the game. And that's really cool to get emails like that knowing that my little show made somebody go like, oh, I never thought about that. So that's awesome. Yeah, no, it really was an awesome episode. I, it, I almost had to like pull the car over um, to just, oh, wow. you, know, you know, make sure I was hearing and listening, you know, to their story well. Um, you know, autonomic dysreflexia is something that I had known about um, more from a thoracic, you know, heart and lungs issues. Um, it had just never occurred to me that there was... Um, a, a pelvic or sexual aspect as well. Um, and so that just, you know, that was just even that much more exciting for me. It's so cool when I talk to them too, and we'll get into who you are in just a second, but it's so cool when I talk to them because I didn't know that either. And I knew friends with autonomic dysreflexia in the past, and I never considered that it would play a role in, in their sexual functioning. So when they told me that, I mean, I was like, oh, cool. I, not cool, but like, oh, wow. I didn't realize <laughs> that. Like, oh, thanks for sharing and so yeah it uh it definitely was eye-opening for me too yeah definitely great guess they were pretty awesome um so let's jump into it can you introduce yourself say who you are and what it is that you do and sure. i want to try a new thing that i keep forgetting to do i'd also love for you to describe yourself to the people who maybe not be able to see you right now or maybe have visual stuff and need it and need you to be described that's a great idea. I mean, we can see each other here on Zoom, but um, all of your listeners 
I mean, I could just be anybody or anything, I suppose. They can't see your professional professory look. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'll be happy to introduce myself. My name is Darren Hoffman. Um, I, what's probably most relevant to our conversation today is that I am um, a professor of anatomy. Uh, my, my rank is assistant professor of anatomy at the University of Iowa College of Medicine. Um, I am a gay white man. Um, I am 42. I am bald. Um, I have some scruffy facial hair and glasses. And, um, and I'm wearing a white shirt because that's pretty safe for me because I'm colorblind. So I wear a lot of white. <laughs> white and white is sexy color. It's very like, I don't think it's, it's very like, you know, in, you can wear it with anything and you look good. So. Oh, I agree. I love white. It, you know, makes your skin look like very healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah it's great color. <laughs> I, I live with psoriasis too and all those things. So like, I know the, the joy of wearing a black shirt or a red shirt and having oh leaving white on it yeah it's not <laughs> not a sexy look so thank you for that description um and you are an, an assistant professor at like you said the university of iowa carver college of medicine right yes awesome cool so are you somebody and you said you were colorblind and you have do you have other disabilities that you live with um not really um i you know i i think the colorblindness or I have a, the specific type of color deficiency I have is called Dutan color deficiency um, is a relatively minor issue in the world. Um, there are ways in which um, it's, it is difficult for me to do some aspects of my job, um, but I'm constantly finding out new tricks and hacks to kind of work around that particular issue. Um, this week I figured out how to use um, Photoshop to figure out the RGB codes for colors so I can color match better in my PowerPoint slides. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, so that, that's a, that was a neat little hack that a friend taught me. Um, so yeah, like it, it's, it's relatively minor. Um, I, like I said, I wear white a lot or I wear a color with white <laughs> because you know, you can, anything matches white, as you said. Um, if I am like left alone in a closet, I'll probably pick something that doesn't match very well. Um, and that, that's a pretty minor disability in the grand scheme of things. Well, not to worry. If I were left alone in a closet too, I would probably do the same thing. And I don't have color blindness. So <laughs> not to worry there at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, other than that, you know, I've got some chronic issues. I've got, you know, anxiety through most of my life. Um, GI issues, which is probably like just totally Oh, me too. To hey, what GI issues do you have? Uh, um, pretty much like, well, I have nausea pretty much every day um, at some point um, that it just, you know, the best way for me to get rid of it is just keep eating. Cool. Um, but the, um, the, the I'm also the other end, you know, like I'm pretty much regular on the diet, diarrhea train. Um, so, oh, no. Yeah. I have IBS, so I feel you right there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I would say that that's, you know, that is, it can be disabling at times for sure so oh yeah it definitely gets in the way of the things you might want to do um, you know and especially as a gay man i'm sure it gets in the way of, of other things too so oh yeah no yeah definitely yeah. it's it's been a this week has been a bad butt week so um you know we're <laughs> shutting down that part of the the sexual operations fun <laughs> times for you um well we could talk about bad butt week for the whole hour but i wanted to <laughs> I wanted to move on to so you, so when you first reached out to me, you kind of said, "Oh, I don't really know if I have disabilities," but I kind of feel like 
from this discussion, I would say you maybe sort of do, whether they're diagnosed or not. But I am curious if you were to consider whether you have, like, if you didn't have disabilities, if you think you don't have disabilities, what about the disability experience was interesting to you and why did you what about it makes you kind of excited oh okay that's so that's a good question um i so i think that um first of all i have a lot of friends and family that have had um and have disabilities now um and so it's 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 always interesting to me to um try to learn more about their experience um through the stories that you know that like that you bring onto your show um that that just helps enrich my perspective on the people that i care about um but I also you know i am an anatomy professor um and i think about bodies all the time um, that's just sort of like my job is to just be aware of bodies in general and um so you know Generally, like we start with the, when we talk about anatomy with students, we start with this definition of like what a quote unquote normal body is supposed to do or how it's supposed to be built or how it's supposed to work. And the cool thing about disabilities, it just kind of reveals all of the different ways that it might work. Um, that yeah. it's not always going to work the way it's supposed to. And in fact, it rarely does in total. You know, the well, whole I mean, body rarely does it, it the right thing. So like this is, it, it's establishing like a whole nother vocabulary for how you might think about anatomy. Yeah, but I would also challenge you a little bit on, uh, on that, not challenge, but suggest to you that mm-hmm. the idea of the right way and the normal way, who decided what's right? Who decided, who decided that this is normative? I mean, exactly. And so yeah. I think like the minute I found out you were an, an anatomy professor and you like talked about anatomy my first thought was i think you know you picture that anatomy thing in the doctor's office where they have like the picture of the guy standing up and there's his body and there's all the musculature and all the stuff and i mm-hmm. thought i was picturing that in my head and i was like why don't they have one with a dude who's in a wheelchair or like somebody oh yeah like who has a different spinal configuration why do they have those in their offices to show not that it's an abnormal thing and oh my god you should look at this but these are also how people go through the world like this. And we should be looking at the way that their bodies have adapted, which I think is pretty fucking cool. The way disabled bodies have adapted to really to just their circumstances in ways that I don't think the medical profession is quite ready for yet. Yeah. You're, you're completely right. Um, that, that that's, um, that's an important issue that um, anatomy is adaptive. And if if your body endures some sort of insult or, you know, something happens that changes the way it needs to function, your body will find a way um, to keep you going. Um, and so there, there are all different forms of, of what's, what is, you know, quote unquote normal anatomy. Um, one of the really cool things about that is that for the most part in our cadaver laboratories where we're um, studying anatomy through dissection, we're working with older people um, who are, you know, primarily our donors are older yeah. and many older people have a- acquired disabilities over their lifetimes. Um, and so we have donors who have amputations or have severe spinal issues. Um, and th- that's, that's an opportunity for our students to see firsthand the reality of anatomy 
um, that's not what it looks like in the textbook. And they usually have a little bit of frustration at first um, with the fact that, well, this patient doesn't have a gallbladder or this donor doesn't have a gallbladder. Like, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to learn? Um, it's like, dude, you're lucky. Like you just, <laughs> you just found an interesting variation that, um, that tells a story. Like let's, let's like work harder to learn from like what's different in this body. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we should be looking at, you know, if any disabled people have donated their bo- their bodies to this this experience, I think it would be really cool to have the students look at, you know, the disabled body and how somebody with with you know scoliosis or cerebral palsy or all those things together. How does how did their body adapt to that? And so, how did they? How do you think they functioned? Yeah, a spine that was severely curved or legs that didn't you know they couldn't walk but they were you know happy or you know how do you tell me how you think they function and how does their body look different from what you expected but also completely the same as what you may have expected and so I think getting to look because I don't think people look at the disabled body enough period at the end so like when I and I, I I think you follow me on social media now so like when I you know take sexy photos of myself what I'm actually doing is saying like look at my body look at how there's a curvature of my legs and there's like a, you know, I, I have contractures. I have all these things in my body that don't make it normative, but I'm showing you so you can get used to it. And I think for students of anatomy to look at photos like that of a live person, you know, saying like, here's my body. I think that's really valuable too. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I really, I, I totally agree. We're hundred percent on the same page there. Awesome. We just need more bodies in front of us, I think. Was there, I'm wondering when you, when you, you know, started considering disability as part of your work, was there any ableism that you had to come up against and confront and think about for yourself? Um, sure. Yeah. I think that um, I like a lot of able-bodied people. I, you know, I have that, that natural bias to like, be afraid of what is unknown or what is different. Um, and so, you know, when you see a person who has a visible disability, like your reaction might be to, you know, well, just leave them alone. You know, like that, that, that person isn't going to benefit from me, you know, getting up in their shit, um, so to speak. Um, but, you know, over time you learn that like everybody's just a buddy, <laughs> Um, and everybody just wants to, you know, connect and, you know, that, that's, that's something that I've really learned a lot from your show is because your show is so completely intersectional, you're always talking about issues that are common to everybody, even if they come from uncommon experience. Um, and that, that, that common ground is something that takes time and exposure to cultivate. And, um, so yeah, definitely came in with a lot of that bias and, um, I wouldn't say that I ever felt like, you know, a disabled person doesn't deserve to be in my medical school class or anything like that. Um, but yeah, like there was no obtuse, you didn't right. have any like really direct, like, oh, I don't, this, this person doesn't deserve space. Right. Not at all. But I think, I think it's important that we like recognize, especially in the academic space, because holy goodness, there's so much ableism in academia i don't even know where to start uh <laughs> well good we can talk about that that's awesome oh, i have i have so many feelings about that because i did school i have a formal education which 
you know, doesn't translate to at all what I'm doing now, but I have a formal education. Uh, <laughs> and it was extremely hard to feel valued there. I was told multiple times by multiple professors that I was in the way. And it was like, okay, why am I spending money to be abused? Like, why am I spending money to be told no here? Like, yeah. When I was finishing my last year of my master's, or no, my last three years of my master's, I had to complete, I had to start my own course because they didn't have a course around that. I went to study disability in the law and they were like, sorry, we don't have that. And I was like, you don't have that. What? So like there was, there was multiple times that ableism in academia kind of hit me in the face. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm much better for it now. And it's given me a whole much more, a whole many more things to tweet about. Yay. Uh, um, I want to ask you, as an assistant professor at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, that's a lot to say, you, as we sort of alluded to, you teach physicians about anatomy. Um, what do you think, and we sort of touched on this, but I want to touch on it more. What do you think is missing in regards to disability within the teaching of the anatomy and if you could address ableism in this field of study, how would you do it? Sure. Um, so I think, so I'll just preface this by saying that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this on two tracks. I'm thinking about what I can do as an anatomy professor. And I'm also thinking about generally in medical education, what we can do. Um, so most of my work is in anatomy, but I also participate in other aspects of our uh, medical program. So I'm kind of thinking on two tracks here. Um, I think that first, you know, like it, it's important to recognize what we are doing and then we can, you know, explore what's missing. Um, we definitely do, you know, teach our students about various forms of disability. We give them a language to understand, you know, the different types of disabilities, where disabilities come from, um, you know, some common issues that might be associated with them. We teach students how to communicate effectively with um, patients who have disabilities, especially if they're nonverbal. Um, that's a skill that every physician needs to have. Yeah. Um, we teach and them that it's um, a skill that many physicians are lacking, <laughs> which is really, you know, I'm sure that like what we're doing right now is not reflected in the general, you know, physician culture that's out there because they may have been educated 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that's too bad um, because that that's, that's what continuing medical education is for. Um, but Anyway, um, you know, we definitely teach people, teach our students that people with disabilities are whole people who are not just a, a diagnosis or um, a problem to deal with, that they are people with autonomy, relationships, goals, you know, their own, you know, concerns that they bring to the clinical encounter. Um, you know, there, I think that there's ways that we work with um, that our students can work with disabled patients or simulated disabled patients that allow them to practice these skills um, that are that are really important. Um, so those are things that I know are happening either at Iowa or elsewhere. Um, you know, but there is a lot of room here. I'm mean, like, if you really look objectively at like how much of the landscape of medical education is focused on um, patients with disabilities, it's small. Um, like, yeah, no matter how you slice yeah, it. Yeah, no matter how you slice it, no matter how much you were doing to try to change the narrative. Um, and I think you're doing, like, I'd love to learn more about, you talk about the kind of the language you're giving them and kind of what you're giving them with it. I'd love to learn from you what language are you using? How are you 
how is that being addressed? Because language and disability is so personal and so like it's really dependent on who you're talking to. So I'd love to learn kind of what language you're giving them sure. in the world with. Well, I think that, you know, we start by contrasting impairments and disabilities as two kind of fundamentally different things that are, that may be related, but, you know, if you have an injury that results in a, a functional impairment, um, that may or may not be a disability, depending on um, the kind of broader social context surrounding it. Like if that, um, if that functional impairment gets in the way of you doing the things you need to do to do your job or the things you need to do to live your life um, and have the relationships that you want, then that's when we consider that a disability. Um, if it's something that is inconvenient but doesn't get in the way of your life, then you have an impairment that may not be a necessarily a disability. Yeah. See, I hearing, I'm hearing that I love that you talk about the difference between impairment and disability because they are two very different things and even I don't talk about them enough separately. So thank you for bringing that to my mind. But my thinking is in the way you describe that and saying that like, if, if what you have gets in the way of your relationships, I, that makes me feel a bit prickly because I think that you can be disabled and that could, I mean, it, it might get in the way of your relationships, but it may not. I think it's, a really hard line to kind of follow when, when like, and it's a hard line to consider when, because I hear what you're saying about not about how if, if it impair if it disables you from doing something that is a disability that makes you know that makes sense, mm -hmm. but also like from a cultural standpoint, disability is something to be proud of and to be you know to be not revered but like to be to be something that you connect with as, as a disabled person a lot of us in disability like who live the disability culture are very proud to be, to be disabled at the same time i agree with you there are things that fucking get in my way so <laughs> i struggle with that being that kind of comparison being given to students because it might set them up to it's so hard because on one hand you're totally right but on the other hand it's like what if that teaches the students that, you know, oh, you're disabled, so you can't, it's going to get in the way of you doing everything. And that's so bad. What if, it, what if it like reinforces the idea unintentionally, of course, but the idea that being disabled is bad and being disabled is like not okay. And so if you have this yeah. impairment, you can't have all the, or you have, if you have this disability, you can't have all these things. And so it just, and again, I don't, I don't know the answer. I can just see, like, I can see somebody going, oh, so you, so having an impairment is better because it doesn't get in, in the way, but having mm -hmm. a disability is super bad because it gets in the way. Like, so right. I would struggle with giving that to students. And I, if it were me up there, I might say, these are great, but these are not 100% accurate for someone's experience. Somebody might come in and say, I love being disabled, but I fucking hate this thing that's happening to me. How do we fix that? Yeah, well, that, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for um, providing that perspective. Um, I think that's important. Um, I think it also kind of reflects a, a, the the um, the difference between a medical perspective on something and maybe more of a cultural or social perspective on something. That the medical perspective is always kind of starting from this pragmatic, 
where's the problem? What can I fix? As, yeah, as, it's starting as from thing. a from a rehabilitative model of what is appropriate and, and what is fixable. And I, I mean, unfortunately, because of the way our our study of medicine has gone over the centuries, that's where we start from when we talk about medicine. How do yeah. I fix? How do I fix you? And there needs to be a cultural shift in. I might want you to fix the symptom as a disabled person, but I might not want you to fix my disability yeah you're right and that's the that's the core of like person-centered care that the person who's actually driving the thing is not the doctor it's it's the person um, who's kind of making their 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 choices and their values the the driving force behind the decision making yeah totally and when like when you do this other teaching do you have i mean obviously before covid but even now do you have like people with disabilities on your like come in and do a zoom and talk about their experience like how do you bring that lived experience to your students yeah we definitely have um patients with just or uh, maybe not patients they aren't actively having care at that time so probably better call them persons with disabilities who come in and and talk to our class um in you know various you know talks panel discussions um, that kind of thing. We have faculty who are disabled who um, are open about their experience. Ooh, that's cool. Disabled faculty, especially like my brain went, oh, because it's very, it's so rare that we hear about professors and faculty who are disabled. And so anybody who's listening, who's a disabled faculty member anywhere, I want to <laughs> talk to you because that's such a, such an underrepresented and under discussed part of academia. Yeah. I, I think you're probably right. Um, so sorry, I, was, I cut you off. So you have all these people that come in and do this. Um, do you, do they do they so they and do they come in in person and like mm-hmm. have the students like work with them? I, I almost said touch them, but that felt weird. But like touch, <laughs> you know, work with their bodies to learn about disability more. Um, you know, usually it's in a, like a real high profile large event. Like where, where the, it's a it's a room full of people, um, and so like it might not be possible necessarily for everyone to yeah yeah of course with that person. Um, I do know that there are um, there are a few different medical schools around the United States that are doing um, simulated patient interactions. It's something that we use a lot in medical education, where we have um, we pay patient actors to portray um, a condition and then the student interacts with them and the whole thing's videotaped and you can kind of really scrutinize the student's communication skills and you know how they're interacting with the individual. And there are many medical schools that actually hire disabled people. I was um, just gonna say, I was just about to be like, well, this is great, but are you hiring an actual disabled person? Like that's, that's great, because I didn't know that. Um, that's amazing because I mean, I think a lot of disability simulations, just generally, when I was a kid growing up, you would see, like, be in a wheelchair for a day and learn how hard it is to, like, be in a wheelchair. And those simulations, back in, like, the 90s, that didn't seem really problematic. But the more and more we learn about, you know, disability rights and, and all that stuff, it's like, at the end of the simulation, you get to stand up and you get to, like, leave that wheelchair. And so mm-hmm. I don't. So, so from, a, from a medical student standpoint, as soon as you said that, my brain went to... I hope they're hiring disabled actors to do this because if they're not, that's really disingenuous and like really hard. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that there it's it's working best in big cities where there's a lot of people, and so then therefore there's a lot of people with disabilities um, who are 
able and willing to to be actors in their medical schools. It's probably harder in smaller communities. Yeah, definitely for sure, for sure. Yeah, and 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 I think I think then for those of you in smaller communities, maybe we don't play the game where you pretend to have this, and maybe we do it another way so that like I get why. It, it makes like I get why they'd want to but I also see it from a cultural standpoint of like that's kind of disingenuous and maybe you should talk to like a real disabled person who can really tell you how it really feels oh and yeah you can build a medical diagnosis or a medical practice from that yeah especially if you're practicing physical skills um you know like if you're if you're trying to turn a person from like a um like a supine position to a sideline position yeah and and they're trying to um, you know, pretend that they have paralysis and, you know, it, emulate what that's like to work with a person who has paralysis. A, an able-bodied person can't possibly. They're never going to get that. it right. No, no. no. Like it, it's, it's not the same thing at all. And, and also I think it, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to help the student overcome their fear factor of like, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt somebody if I, if I touch them wrong. Yeah, you know, that that's that's a bias that people bring into an interaction with a disabled person, and they uh, that isn't going to be necessarily helped by a really skilled actor who's no. not themselves disabled. No, you should definitely like they need to be hiring disabled actors so that if you do touch me and it's wrong, there's a real reaction that comes from that. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like I think that bias of not wanting to touch us also speaks to we've been told for centuries that it isn't okay to touch a disabled person, that you're going to catch something, that it's, you're going to yeah. get their quote-unquote disease. And so there's so many layers of why do you want to touch us? Like, I mean, it's different now because of the world we're living in and like, and the things that are happening. But before all this, many people wouldn't want to touch disabled people just because. Mm-hmm. Like you might get, oh my God, if I touch you, I might get CP. Like, yeah as crazy as that seems now (laughs) yeah that seems silly now um i wanted to ask you as far as you know are there any visibly disabled or invisibly disabled students in your classroom oh yeah definitely um we have um had uh, had students with amputations who wear prosthetics um we've had students with fibro um, or chronic fatigue syndrome We've had um, wheelchair user students, um, students with hearing loss, um, like emotional disabilities and um, learning disabilities are abundant yeah. um, in, in our classroom. So um, I, I, we're, we're pretty familiar with, I, I have never had a student uh, in anatomy who, had a, um, who, had, who was blind. Um, that's something that I've never experienced, um, you know, how to teach anatomy to someone who, who can't see. Um, it, it's a really interesting challenge. Um, obviously, you could feel um, a lot of that anatomy, um, but um, that's something that I haven't experienced yet. But other than visual disabilities, I, we've pretty much run the spectrum in our classes. And so what kind of accommodations are done for those students usually? Um, well, I think we're really good at, um, you know, making our spaces accessible. Um, you know, we're we're definitely on, you know, the, the ADA compliant train in terms of making sure that all of our classroom spaces have like the, um, the type of um, motorized doors that you can operate with, um, by kicking it. Um, so the, yeah. the, the paddles down the floor. Um, 
We have, um, for our students with hearing impairments, um, all of our lecture halls have T-loops installed um, and um, we all, you know, learn how to use them um, and make sure that we are, we're using that equipment when we need to. Um, uh, if a student has a hearing impairment, they'll often choose to sit really close to the front of the room so they can lip read um, during a class. That's way easier right now during COVID, by the way. Um, cause, oh, yeah, cause they can see my face like real big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's good. Um, I think uh, in anatomy, we have like little risers um, and ramps and um, aerobic steps that we use, you know, not necessarily just for disabled folks, but if we have a like a um, partners dissecting and one person is, you know, six, six and the other one is five foot tall. Um, it really helps to sort of equalize the height a little bit by giving somebody something to stand on. Um, so we think about that in anatomy quite a bit. Um, we have a really good counseling um, service within our college um, that supports students who have emotional issues, um, you know, coming into medical school. Um, same in dental school. I teach dental students as well. Um, the dental school has their own you know, in-house counselor who works with students on their, those issues. Um, learning disabilities, you know, we spend a lot of time, um, you know, making sure that we're um, creating the circumstances that allow people to demonstrate their learning of anatomy. Um, so usually that is, you know, a quiet room, um, extra time on assessments. Um, we record everything we teach. Um, so, and we don't expect that students will necessarily attend everything. Um, good. Because, I like that. I really like, because when I was in school, <laughs> if you didn't attend and you, you had to like beg your professor to be like, I can't be there because of disability stuff. And they, it would be fine, but you have to send an email and like, like, you know, basically plead with them to let you off. And it's like, I don't want to have to do this. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, no, it, it you know, it, it actually just works better for so many people. Um, who really benefit from have, being able to pause a recording and look something up in the moment rather than, you know, just writing a note in the margin and coming back to it later and forgetting what the note and even And being meant. like, what was, yeah, what was that for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so a, a lot of our students benefit from having that technology available. And um, I, it, I think it's a, it's a really big bonus um, in the way we teach now. That's awesome. And I hope, you know, that that kind of that kind of trickles down to all the way we're doing it, because, mm -hmm. you know, as much as I loathe Zoom and I do loathe it, but I also <laughs> appreciate that I can record things now and I can go back and have it if I want to watch somebody's thing and it's on Zoom or it's on their YouTube or it's whatever it is, it's there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a question that I didn't write down because you said you also teach in dentistry mm -hmm. and dentistry for me as a disabled person and like dental care and oral care is really hard for me because of my disability and because of my spastic CP. I have a, sure. you know, for both sexy reasons and unsexy reasons, I'll say that I have a really strong gag reflex, um, <laughs> which in certain circumstances in my life has been amazing and certain circumstances in my life, i.e. dentistry has been really hard. I bet. And, ma and made it super hard. And I also have a lot of issues with my own oral health in terms of like brushing my teeth and I brush them all the time because I have issues getting all the spots with my gums and brushing them as, as you know, we're taught to. I don't think there's a lot of teaching people with spastic 
you know, or, or lower hand dexterity or stuff like that, how to do how to brush their teeth. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us with with CP and other spastic stuff have really poor dental hygiene, not for fault of us, like not brushing just because we can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so glad you asked about this because I have some really specific things that I do with dental students. But before I get into that, I wanted to follow up with something you just said. Is your um, gag reflex, is that related to the spastic muscle in your throat? Yes. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. I hadn't even thought of that before, but that's... So if you put anything down my throat, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I will... <laughs> Even if I'm enjoying it, I'll probably gag on it because yeah. because of the muscles. And so when oh, okay. the okay. doctors are putting like the I can't I don't know what all the things are called, but you know all the all the dentistry yeah tools. the mirrors the hand pieces the yeah whatever. all that stuff back there is bad. Like even if I'm relaxed, I would have to I would even think you at it right now. It's like oh god, but like you know I have a friend with spastic CP also, and when every time he goes to the dentist, he has to be put out because he can't. His mm, gag yeah, reflex is yeah. so strong that he will, you know, be sick, which is a danger for him and for the for them. So, like, I and I haven't gone to the dentist in a long time because every time I go, they tell me the same thing. They're like, just keep brushing and floss. And I'm like, but I have disabilities. Like, I can do the brushing part, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> but I definitely can't floss. Yeah, flossing is an extremely fine dexterity task to do even if you're using a floss pick like one of those little plastic things yeah um, i'd imagine even then like the the dexterity that'd be required to get in between every tooth that's that's a lot to ask yeah it's a lot it is a lot. <laughs> so so i'm wondering do you have you considered thinking about disability in, in part in that part of your practice and your part of your work yeah so um you know i teach dental students in the spring um i teach med students in the fall um so i, I get to kind of like flip over to a different side of my brain um in january um and when i work with the dental students um one of the things that i um do with them regarding disability is um you know ask them to imagine um that they have a new practice <laughs> Um, and a patient with, um, you know, a pretty significant disability comes to their practice. And I usually use um, a patient with a cervical spinal cord injury as the example, um, because they, uh, it's, 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 frankly, it's kind of easy to understand, um, yeah. you know, f- from an anatomical basis. Um, and it relates to some core content that we're addressing on, you know, the spinal cord. So um, I asked them to think about like, what are all the things you do with a patient in a normal, quote unquote, normal, um, you know, dental visit and breaking it down to just the smallest things like, you know, that, that chain that they put behind your neck and then they attach to that little piece of fabric that, you know, that catches the chunks as they fly out of your mouth. Um, (laughs) So like, that's something you have to do. You have to like put the bib chain on. Or you have to, um, you know, you often you'll ask the turn the the patient to turn their head toward you so that you can, you know, see into the back of their mouth more easily. You know, all of these small things that you ask people to do, or or swallow. I mean, like swallow on command. That's not that's hard for anybody to do. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, so basically we just make this huge list of all the things that uh, that a person has to do um, to facilitate their dentist visit. And then we kind of just go through it as an inventory, like which of these things would be easy for somebody with a C2 injury to do versus someone with a C6 injury to do. 
um, and just and thinking about it anatomically. I mean, that's my job is to teach anatomy, but like running it through this filter of a realistic experience um, I, that it's something that the students really, I think, I think they really appreciate thinking about it that way. Um, they're not always right. And, you know, frankly, I don't know if I'm right um, because I'm not a dentist um, and I also don't have a cervical spinal cord injury. Um, but it at least allows us to imagine how the things that we're learning actually matter and um, yeah. might, might make a difference um, in, in a situation like that. You know, one of the things about dentistry that's very different than medicine is as soon as, when you graduate dental school, you go right into practice. Most dentists don't pursue a residency. So these four years they have in dental school is that's all their training for the most part, you know, aside from their, whatever continuing education they do. Um, so I think it's really important in dental school to help students see themselves as disability allies right then and to, to see themselves as somebody who can say yes to that patient to say that, you know, I don't know everything about your condition and I don't know all the ways in which it's going to make my practice challenging but I want to say yes to you. Um, and I've, I've had experiences thinking through some of these challenges that makes me believe that it's possible. Um, because when you're a young, new dentist starting up your practice, it's very easy to say, no, I'm too busy. I can't handle this. Yeah. But, but if you have that identity inside of you as an ally to the disability community um, and that you're willing to think a little bit more and work a little bit harder, um, to be a partner and not to just say like, well, if you can't do it my way, I can't treat you. Um, I think that that's a win if, if we can imprint on students early, um, you know, through those types of experiments. Yeah. And I think what we should be imprinting on students early is, is, you know, disability allyship is not appointed. It's earned. Mm. So when you said just there, like, you want the students to think they're, you know, to think of themselves as allies. I immediately was like, yes, but also no, because like, <laughs> they haven't have done they, anything. <laughs> yeah. Like what have they done to prove to me that they're willing to confront their enableism in this space? Because, you know, this podcast was pr predominantly about sex. I'll bring it back to that for a minute. Two things I want to say about that. Cause, cause, when you said swallow on command, my brain went to like <laughs> 10 different inappropriate joke places that I wanted to go. Uh, but then also, you know, thinking about when we think about what is sexy and what is presentable, we think about people's teeth and we think yeah. about their smile and we think about that's, you know, the, one of the first things you see, maybe not so much anymore because we're all wearing masks right now, but like, you know, generally when you see somebody that you think is attractive, you, the first thing you say is, oh, they have a great smile. And mm -hmm. like, for me, I've been plagued by having a great smile, but feeling like I have shitty teeth because I have a lot of issues with gingivitis and gum bleeding stuff and all the stuff. Sure. Because of my disability, I can't brush as quote unquote properly as someone else would. So when I go mm -hmm. to the dentist, whenever I go, I feel like I'm admonished because oh, you didn't do this. And it's like, well, I couldn't because the tools that are out there don't really fit what my needs are. So right. I guess what I'm saying is we, the, the dentistry practice needs to, like you were saying, you, you practice on the hypothetical person with a, with a spinal cord injury. I would love for them to bring in a, a person with spastic CP and not do anything, 
just sit with them in the room and be like, okay, what's hard for you here? And mm-hmm. if it were you, what would you need for us to fix in this dentist's office? Like for me, sometimes when I roll into a dentist's office, they'll go, oh, you can't get out of your chair? Oh yeah, so we can't treat you. Like you can't transfer into the dentist chair that, okay, well, we're not treating you. Like I've had so many conversations with, with like just people on the phone saying like, oh, I, I want to come and get my teeth cleaned or I'm worried mm-hmm. about gingivitis. I want to look into this and then go, oh, you can't transfer? Then you can't come. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's too bad. I know that there are ways to do dentistry in your chair. Because um, I've had and- it before. Yeah, so that that's that, it, it's too bad that more people aren't willing to open up their practice to be more than what it is yeah. um, right now. That's it's too bad. Um, I did have one other question about that. Oh yeah, do you think that there's another kind of toothbrush that would be more friendly for people with limited dexterity? Because a lot of the issues we have with brushing people with CP specifically is limited to dexterity, I can do the front of my teeth and I can do like the front teeth fine, mm-hmm. but any of the side teeth or the eye teeth or the molars or anything, having to get back in there is really hard. Is there any, as far as you've seen, any special like? Brush? I mean, there's gotta be. It just seems like, like for, I don't know, like I haven't seen this myself, but um, would you imagine that just simply having a larger handle would make an easier or would at least move in the right direction. Like not having such a small um, handle. I I would think also like a curved, like a curved brush, a brush that could almost like a pipe, almost like a pipe cleaner brush Uh that could like curve itself around your mouth. Sure. Yeah. That you're, yeah. It could kind of be dynamic as you're working. Yeah. And I have no idea if that exists, but if it doesn't, it's got to exist. I'm Googling it after we're done. And and if I find anything, I'll send it to you. Somebody should call me. And if if it doesn't exist, let's make it. We'll make a million dollars. I also know you had a ton of questions for me about. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I am really excited to have you ask them to me. So. Yes. Okay. So let me, um, let me find that list. Um, Okay. So it's like, as, as you know, I'm an anatomist and I'm obsessed with bodies. I find bodies fascinating. And one of the things that I do when I teach anatomy is I really deliberately try to get people to understand that what you're learning about is not just the body of your patient, but it's also the body of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, these are your parts too. And um, there's two reasons why I think that's important. One is that it, it communicates that we all are more similar than different. <laughs> You know, like it's, it's sort of a common feature of humanity is that, you know, we all have a body and they all have these different combinations of parts. Um, and, um, and most, for the most part, you know, even when we have very obvious differences physically, um, the internal structure is quite similar. Um, and that to me, that's like a very world enriching perspective. Um, and it helps me understand that I'm not better than anybody else, um, that everybody is, you know, the same race, so to speak. Um, and uh, so I think that's a, a real pro. Um, a, another pro that I got from anatomy is learning how to love my own body. Um, Ooh, that's a big one. Um, by understanding that my body is more than just the emotional stuff that I put on it. Um, it's also kind of objectively cool. Um, so, you know, the, the, the scientific study of my own body 
kind of set me free from some of my own baggage about my body not being good enough. Um, what I am curious for you to learn about from you is, um, is that an ableist point of view um, that, that studying the body objectively will naturally end with self-acceptance and self-love? Um, and that's kind of related to my bigger question, which is, you know, what are the ways in which your body is part of your identity? Um, because that, that, I think that's all tied together. So that's a lot to <laughs> respond to. That was a big question. Feel free I, to jump in wherever you like. <laughs> I did want to kind of go back to something you said, where you said we're all one race. Uh-huh. I know what you were saying. I totally get where you're going. My brain went to like, mm, that feels weird. Cause like, I don't think we are one race. I think it's okay. I mean, I, I think we all have one body structure in a way. Sure. But I feel like saying, using the word one race feels kind of squidgy. Yeah. And, and yeah, race is probably not a wise word choice um, in all of the things that that means. Um, yeah. But we are one species. Let's say that. All right. Um, and and this is how our species tends to operate. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And I was like, nah, I, can't, I don't know if I should leave that alone. Um, Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> um, but can, and can you ask the question, your questions again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, like, so the bigger question is like, um, as somebody who has a disabled body, you know, how does that associate with your sense of identity? Like, do, and, and is that different than somebody who is able-bodied? Um, do you sense that there's something different there? For me, and I can only I can only speak for me, but for me, it totally does. It informs how I move through my day. It informs how I get up. It informs how I feel. It informs all of the things that I need in my day. So having a disabled body does totally affect my identity. And I would say, people always say, oh, Andrew, your disability doesn't define you. And I say, yeah, it does. A thousand percent it does. It doesn't mean I always like it, but it does. And it's okay to, to, to qualify that and say, yeah, my disability does define me. One of my friends on the Instagram says a cool thing that's like, my disability does define me. It doesn't confine me. And mm. I kind of like that because it's okay to be defined by your disability, but it doesn't mean it has to stop you from trying anything. And that's right. all right. I like that. I like that. So if you took my anatomy class and, and I was throwing this messaging at you. If about, I took your anatomy class, I'd be flirting with the prof and I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might have to have a conversation about boundaries. Yeah. Student. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so if you were taking my anatomy class and I was teaching you about how the body works and, and I was throwing this messaging at you about how like the body is beautiful and, um, you know, like the, the, the learning these things about how the body works is a pathway to self-acceptance. Would that ring true for you, um, based on your relationship with your body or would that be hurtful in some way? Um, I guess I'm just trying to make sure I'm not hurting my disabled students. I wouldn't Um, say it's hurtful. I would say I would caution you and suggest that the journey to any kind of self-acceptance, especially for disabled-bodied individuals, is a long journey. And some days you go up and some days you love yourself. And the next day you're down in the valley being like, fuck, I fucking hate this. I don't like this. So I I think we have to... And one of the things I love about talking about disabilities as frequently as I do is I get to talk about the shitty stuff. The yeah. shitty stuff is where you see 
how somebody really feels about something and how something really affects somebody. The shit is where you get to do all that. So I think just saying, like, oh, yeah, you'll love your body and you'll get closer to self-acceptance. That's, I get where that sentiment comes from. I would say sit with them in the valley for a minute and mm. talk with them about the shitty stuff. Let them, let them discuss all that with you as a disabled person because that's where you're going to find stuff that you didn't realize that you can use in your teaching that is based on real emotional stuff. What people don't tend to realize when they teach disability or when they talk about disability or when they talk about anything generally is that there's, but particularly disability, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we go through that we don't talk about, that we put away, that we compartmentalize because we understand and we've been taught that it's easier if you, if you push that down and you present this overcoming narrative of like, I'm going to overcome and look at me, I'm doing this and I'm battling my thing and you can do that. But I find it way more fascinating and interesting as a researcher and someone who does this to be like, but how does the shitty part feel? Yeah. And why? And can you give language to that? Can you speak to that? And can you talk about that? Because that's where you find out how somebody really truly feels about disability in their body. And I think for you as a professor to maybe have a day where you're like, okay, instead of talking about how beautiful the body is, let's talk about how ugly it is. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about why you hate it. Not to say, not to like instill that like, oh my God, you have to hate your body after this. But to let (laughs) them, to let them like, really get into that emotional side that I think is often glossed over. That's, that's, that's great advice. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I wrote that down. I'm going to sit with them in the Valley for a bit. I like that. Awesome. You can, um, you can tell so, me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how has your anatomy changed during your life as a person with CP? Like, uh, I'm sure that you've had, you know, spinal issues with oh, yeah. your body has twisted over time. Um, what are some other things that have changed anatomically for you? So spinal issues, uh, for sure. Had scoliosis from the time I was about, I still have it now, but I had a severe case from the time I was, you know, born up until 16 when I had to have surgery because the OT was like, well, the options are your spine will crush your windpipe or surgery. And I was like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess surgery is the option. Um, and then, you know, my, my muscles have gotten tighter. My spasms have gotten more pronounced as I've gotten older. The last four years, I've lost the ability to pee on my own, which as a man, this rather, has been super emasculating for me sure. um, because that was one of the, one of the few things that my body could do on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've kind of developed IBS more frequently as I've gotten older, which makes going to the bathroom a real fun time for me because I need help with everything. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, those change. And also those changes have really, from a, a like a sexy gay male standpoint, those changes have really made it hard for me to feel hot in my body. And I work in sex and disability. And it's really hard to like promote sexiness of disabled people when you're like, I don't feel hot at all. What do, how do I, what do I do about this? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so uh, thank you for sharing those, um, those things that have changed for you. That that's, that's really important. Um, 
I try to make sure that my students understand that anatomy is not static. Um, and this is a really specific example of, you know, ways that anatomy can change um, over a person's life. And I mean, ironically, I lost the ability to pee the night that Trump won the election in 2016. Are you serious? Um, yep. No, that's literally that can't be a coincidence. I know. I know. <laughs> so I'm kind of terrified to see what happens when he, if, if, please God, let me say if, if he wins this next election. <laughs> Oh, I know. Like, what What else are you going to lose? Yeah, what other bodily function will I not have to use anymore? So, please vote. Please, American friends. Oh, yeah. You got no problem from me. Like, yeah, all the all the American listeners, please yeah, just, I cast mean, go, your vote. Listen, even if Biden is not the most, your most favorite person, he's better than whatever's in there right now. So Yeah, yeah I'm with you, Andrew. Oh, my goodness. Um... <laughs> Do you have any more questions for me? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so can we stay on the topic of sex for a minute? Sure. Okay. Um, I'm curious. Um, are you comfortable um, discussing sex um, with a physician? Like, and the, the unique issues about sex and disability, like what, what does it take for you to feel like um, you could have that conversation with a physician and have it be a meaningful conversation? That's a great question. That's a really, that's a really good, it's been, it's been hard for me. And my, my, my primary care provider is great. She tries really hard to be as accessible as possible. But even with her, I feel awkward being like, so I sucked a dick last night or the other day and I, I want to get a test. I, I feel awkward doing that because I feel like part of me has internalized ableism around I'm disabled. I shouldn't be in her office telling her that I sucked a dick last night. But also, <laughs> like, I have a right to tell her that I was in, that I sucked a dick last night and I want to get tested for whatever. Yeah. And, but one of the things I will say to her credit, I'm not going to name her, but she's awesome. To her credit, she, um, I think last year I was having a lot of sex with my favorite sex worker over a few months. And so I went to go get tested for a test. I was like, I'm going to be responsible and get a test. Mm-hmm. guys and i go in there and we were talking about earlier we were talking about my gag reflex and i you know when they test when they do the throat swab they put that wiry little thing on your throat which is a horrible thing for my gag reflex Not bad. I, I said to her i said to her I'm, i might throw up on you because of the swab and she without missing a beat looked at me and said when you were having <laughs> when you were having sex with him last night did you did you do that on his dick and I I just about lost it I laughed so hard and I gave her a high five and I was like you get me doc like wow (laughs) no I didn't but you get me and I I I don't know if that crossed a bunch of boundaries but it felt really nice because I was like oh my god I can be open with her about like what I'm doing and Uh so that's that's a great example of her like meeting you exactly where you are and and making you feel comfortable yeah i would imagine that's like a really important skill for oh yeah and i mean so many disabled people don't feel comfortable in the the doctor's office period so when she did that i was like okay we're gonna be best friends now like that i really felt much more trust with her and i felt so comfortable being able to like laugh with her because i was like oh, i can relax now Mm -hmm. that's cool that's great um so do you feel like um in, in other, like I've listened to your show for a while, so I know you've talked about like the some of the physical ways that you know you have to think about having 
you know, having sex with someone and like the, how you're, how you're going to make that work physically with a lift or, you know, whatever you, you need and however that's going to work. Like, is that yeah. a conversation that you feel like you need to have with a physician or, or do you have sort of like a, a medical aspect of your sex life and then like a personal aspect that you prefer to keep separate? I mean, not so much. I've had STIs before and I've had issues with that. And so that, that's kind of more medical. Like I'll say mm -hmm. to her, I'll say to her things like, hey, I had sex without a condom the last time. And I'll be very upfront about that because I'm, I'm not going to lie about it. But that I do feel sometimes like as a disabled person, I'm chastised a little bit harder than the average person. If I said like, I chose not to wear a condom when I fucked this dude this time, you know, they're like, come on, Andrew. Now you should, you know, wear protection. And I'm like, but I'm 36. I'm allowed to tell you that I had unprotected sex. I'm telling you. Yeah. So instead of like admonishing me, test me anyway. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's there's some sort of ableist kind of um, perspective coming in there that like, you know, that you should know better. That seems very paternalistic. Yeah, and that's kind of how like, <laughs> and again, my doctor, I love her. She's great, but that's kind of how she did it. And I was like, I don't, I don't even think you're meaning to be, be, I didn't say this to her, but in my head, I was like, I don't think you're meaning to be ableist here, but it feels kind of weird that you're waggling my, your finger at me when I when I I could have lied to you and said right. like yeah I wore a condom but I'm not lying to you I'm telling you the truth so you can get all the proper testing and so yeah. that that like that feels kind of weird when when you're really honest with them and they like now come on you should know better like, of course I should know better but I chose not to wear a condom so don't yell at me help me fix the problem mm. Well, I can certainly relate um, to the experience of lying to the doctor. That's that's something I'm sure a lot of gay people have have had that experience. Ooh, let's find out how you lie to the doctor. <laughs> well, certainly, like um, you know, when they ask you the question, like, "Do you use protection?" and you're like, "Yes," and they say, "Do you use protection all the time?" and you're like, mm, "Yes," because you know it's easier to just end the conversation than yeah. to than to have the same, you know, like reminder um or i used to be a smoker um and so like i know that i shouldn't be smoking um the so, only thing you should be smoking is pole <laughs> true statement <laughs> yeah so like i i think i i relate to that part of it definitely um okay um so i guess i had um so in like moving away from sex just in general like, I'm curious about, like, you know, you mentioned that at the beginning of this, that you've, you've had a lot of experiences with physicians that were sort of undereducated or underprepared to work with disabled, um, disabled patients. So, you know, we tend to kind of categorize learning goals into knowledge, skills, and attitudes um, as being things that we can impart to learners. Yeah. Um, um, are there any of those three things that you feel like are particularly, you know, deficient in the healthcare community and, um, and what are they? So I can, you know, turn around and talk to people that I work with and really try to, you know, make change happen. Yeah. The biggest thing I think is deficient. The, the knowledge base is not there. The knowledge base from a, from a lived experience is not there. Um, we don't see disabled people talking about their bodies in textbooks. Where's that? Um, we don't see that. The the and what was the other one? Knowledge, skills, and the skills. How are you going to learn if you never encounter a disabled person? Mm -hmm. They need to be hired 
to do stuff like we talked about earlier, like like the simulations. Um, mm-hmm. You need to also hire disabled people as professors in this space to talk about that stuff. Like, I'd love to see you co-professor with a disabled person slash hire me one time and I'll do that with you. Uh, <laughs> but like, no, I think I think there need to be professors who are disabled and we like you alluded to that there are but more I think more visibly than there are and I think more I think professors need to if they're comfy they need to disclose more because if I knew when I was in college that I had a disabled professor who went through some of the shit some of the shit that I went through I would feel so much more in tune with them and Mm -hmm. so much more willing to share with them and willing to be open with them and willing to be vulnerable with them that I would probably do really much better in the courses than I did. I mean, I did pretty well because I wanted people to like, like me and I wanted to be top of the class because I had internalized ableist views of like people thought I was not smart enough because I was in a wheelchair. So I, I tried to do really well. But if I had known that one of my professors had a disability, it would have changed the game. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That's that's a part of why I feel obligated to be very out about being gay. Um, at in my work is for the same reason for gay students who may have not seen a gay professor before um, to you know eliminate that feeling that you don't belong here. Um, and you yeah. mentioned that that academia did not feel like a disability friendly space for you, and that could have been very different um, if there had been different types of people um, involved in your education. I mean, it still doesn't feel like a very, a very friendly place for me. And I have been out of academia now for eight years. Yeah. And I still don't feel like I, I don't like it because it's so classist. And it's so like, but at the same time, I'm like, there's such an opportunity here for this institute, all these institutions to change the game. Like they've hired me a bunch to be a speaker. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to fight with them over, over access just to be a speaker like it's gotten much better over the couple, last couple of years, mm-hmm. but there's so much more they could be doing. And what they need to be doing is hiring disabled profs. Like yeah. hire a wheelchair using prof. Like you're absolutely right. That that totally changes the game because if if say for example, um, you know, I have a friend who has uh, MS and uses a scooter um, to get around. And when she went from um, uh, from using a cane or a walker to using a scooter. Um, that really changed her accessibility needs. Um, and it, it became like a departmental directive to immediately make sure that every door that she would use in the day um, gets into the workflow for getting upgraded to having those paddle style door openers. Um, and like the, so just the, the presence of those individuals in the workplace makes the workplace more accessible. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're totally right, you know, on, on a basic practical level, but then also on that level of just seeing yourself in the community that you're in. That's just so incredibly important. Because when I was in college, like 17 years ago, I remember my first year and in first year, they put you in those giant lecture halls with like 500 other people. And the disabled person was either right at the front, which is really embarrassing when you, if you just want to like, if you just want to sleep through the class, but be there. <laughs> like but, everyone else. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be right at the front. Or if you really like the class, you're right at the back. Mm-hmm. I was right at the back at the top of, there, there was like two floors to this hall. And I was at the top of one of the floors in like a little mezzanine, 
not med, like one of the top tier things. And mm-hmm. I was in there, and I would see, I could see the professor, but she was a dot on the ground yeah. that I would have to focus on. And I remember it was Monday morning, eight o'clock. It was like Laws one thousand, the first law class. And I loved this professor because, and we're still friends to this day. Like she was my favorite professor, and I couldn't see her, but I couldn't get down in front because like there was no accessibility there. So it was like, who is designing these halls? To and like, what if you're the professor? What if you want to go up to the one of the students and you're in a wheelchair oh, right. and they're way up at the top? Like, what? How do you do that? So, yeah, these the way that academia teaches us about who's allowed to be there, whether intentional or unintentional, speaks volumes. You're right. You're right. yeah, and a lot of that is just rooted in this this worship of the historical way. You know these these vaulted lecture hall things. You know with with stairs that are so steep that they're dangerous for you know so an athlete. Steep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I remember she used to wear like really fancy high heels. And I remember we used to watching her walk up walk up and down. And I thought she was a badass. Every time she walked down, I was like, "Yeah, good for you." But I also <laughs> thought like so inaccessible. Um, I'm actually excited because I'm going to have her on the show in a couple of weeks. Oh, good! I can't wait. To talk more, more about academic ableism because I she's literally the professor that like told me hi Jane she told me that we could do my master's together and I would have her as my professor and we weren't in the same field of study at all but she was like I love what you're trying to do I'll work with you and it was just she just changed the game for me so I love her to death but we're gonna talk about academic ableism together in a few weeks and I oh cool that's that's gonna be a great episode can't wait I'm so excited but but. To the larger point, like, what was our question again? Go back to what it was? I don't remember. Oh, God, I don't, I guess I don't even remember. Oh, we were just talking about, like, what are the skills or, you know, attitudes that are deficient? In yeah, so the, so, so the, the, skill, the skill's not there because we're not hiring enough disabled profs. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, the attitude is definitely not there. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a hospital and fought with doctors over the way I was treated. Not even doctors, but not even physicians but nurses and orderlies and, and PCAs in the hospital just to get my base needs met because they didn't listen to me and they didn't, I was in the hospital once and I had to go to the bathroom and I said to the, I, I got the orderly to come in or the nurse and I said, can you come in and help me please? And they were like, oh, um, we'll help you, but you haven't had enough water to drink. And I said, yeah, because you put, the water in an inaccessible bottle for me. Can you go down to the cafeteria and get me like a proper bottle and then I can drink more and then we can do the catheter. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh no, the kitchen's closed. And I, I was like, okay, <laughs> but how do you expect me to increase my output if you don't give me the water to drink in a way that's accessible for me? And I remember fighting with this nurse to the point where I had to call my brother who, who lived a couple blocks from the hospital. And I was like, can you go to my house and pick up my special bottle and like bring it to the hospital so that I can drink? He had to do that. But I was like, this is so silly. If you just brought yeah. me the bottle of water, I could have done it. And it would just, I remember being so angry because I was like, what if it was more emergent than just a drink? Right, what exactly. If it was like, uh, what if it was like a healthcare thing? Why aren't you supporting me? And it was so angering. It, was, it made me livid. Yeah, I can understand that that would do so. Um, 
let's see. I, I think I, oh yeah. Okay. I have one more big question for you. And that is, so I'm trying to channel my students here um, okay. who may or may not be listening. I hope they are. Um, they, um, I'm sure what they want to know most is what can they do right now, um, you know, to, to grow in the right direction, to be, become a, a physician who is um, an ally to you and other disabled people? Like, what are the things they should be doing as students um, to better themselves? Okay, first things first, realize you're not an ally until a disabled person tells you you are. Yes. So don't self-appoint yourself as an ally until you've done the work. Show me your homework, kids. Show me you've done it. Secondly, <laughs> like, realize that you're, an, that you're ableist. I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't mean this to, like, admonish anybody, but everyone is ableist. Everyone will be ableist, but that's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person, but start from that knowledge and work, work, not past that, but work within that knowledge of like, you're going to fuck up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to probably be an ableist to somebody that's going to really hurt them. It doesn't make you a horrible person. It means you have shit to work on. Mm -hmm. And like, confront what are your ableist biases where do they come from how do they how does it feel when someone calls you out on them confront that first and know that that's going to be there no matter what but work within that framework to change things but don't forget that it's there mm -hmm. that is really good advice like the looking inward and understanding your own personal landscape before you you know enter the rest of the world yeah love that like, like, let me put it this way to the students too and to you. Like, I'm a disabled person. I've worked in, dis in the disability freelance space now for six plus, no, more than that, almost, almost 10 plus years. Um, and I say ableist stuff all the time. And I am always sometimes called in gently and sometimes called out not so gently for the stuff that I've said. And I, I work to try to fix it and to try to better myself. But I don't hide from the fact that I can be an ableist too. That's okay. It's okay to admit that. The more and more we admit that, the closer we come to dismantling it together. Like, I feel like a lot of disability activists will say stuff like, oh, you're an ableist. Like, so fuck you, you're an ableist. Like, move on. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't help anybody. I want to say to anyone who's done an ableist thing that's listening, you being an ableist doesn't make you a bad person. It means you have shit to work on and that's all right. Yeah. Gosh, this, this is so reminiscent of the conversation around systemic racism and, and, and those issues that, that the way to begin is to acknowledge, you know, your own racism. Um, Without that, like jumping to defensiveness and like, exactly. And that's, and that's hard for everyone. When I get called out for being an ableist or, you know, sometimes I do all, all do racist stuff and not realize it. And when I get called out, it hurts for a minute. But then mm -hmm. I think, how do I fix that? It isn't about me being hurt. It's about fixing the bigger problem. And if right. that means I have to take a seat or apologize, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Gosh, that's great. Love it. Um, so, awesome. So charged up. I'm, I'm doing a lecture today on lower limb anatomy. So I'm sure we're going to get into some, some topics related to disability today. I'm very excited. Cool. What lower limbs are we talking about? We are talking about um, from the knees down. Um, so yesterday we got from the hips to the knees. So now we got to finish the rest of the story. 
hips are fun. You can talk about subluxations and all that stuff because mm-hmm. that happens a lot. And I went through that and it's fun times. Um, <laughs> but this is such a fun conversation with you, Darren. I really appreciated sitting down with you. And, yeah, I agree. Um, this has been great. It was really, I love, in what I do, I love being able to teach people about disability in a way that feels non-threatening and non-shamey and makes them feel like they have a space here so i really i really appreciate that you reached out to me and said you learned something and that we could continue our conversation like this yeah thank you uh, thanks for the opportunity and um to share space with you i really appreciate it oh we're not done i'm sure you and i will be doing something else together i'm sure that we'll figure out a way to work together again oh heck yes definitely let's keep the conversation going um but professor is it professor hoffman Sure, if you want. All right. Um, <laughs> Professor Hoffman, how do people get a hold of you? How can they follow your work and how can they reach out to you? Um, okay, so I'm not hard to find on the internet. Um, the, the trick is that my last name has two N's on it. And if you, if you search Darren Hoffman with two N's, you'll probably hit me right away. Um, and um, University of Iowa helps. Um, but I have a Facebook account that's pretty much just personal stuff. So that's probably not very interesting. Um, I've got a Twitter that is a little bit more focused on my anatomy education work. So that might be useful to you, but probably the most interesting stuff would be if you go to YouTube and if you just search my name on YouTube, um, I have a channel there and I have a lot of anatomy content that you might find interesting, including massage and anatomy. Oh, <laughs> trying not to make a sexy joke right at the end there, but like, <laughs> oh, what kind of massage? Uh, well, I mean, it's non-erotic massage. It's, it, it's therapeutic, Ooh, orthopedic no, massage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but they're really good videos that I produced with a friend of mine who runs a massage therapy college here in town. And um, they're, they're meant to kind of show um, massage techniques and the anatomy that underlies them. Um, cool. So and I, I would... Check it out. I would love to uh, talk more with you sometime about how massage and disability work together because... Oh, gosh, yeah, let's do that. That would be awesome. Well, we'll have you on again for a whole other part, for sure. But this was really fun. I love sitting down with you, and you're such a fun guest. And thank you so much for your time today. And Professor Darren Hoffman from the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Yes, right? Yep, you got it all. Good, because that's a a big mouthful, and I like big things in my mouth, but that was hard to say. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Darren Hoffman, thank you so much for your time today, and we'll talk right after I press off all right thanks andrew thanks bye all right friends this has been another episode of disability after dark the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories i'm of course your host andrew gerza your number one queer cripple and your disabled dick smith if you want to follow my work you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or follow me on all social media at it's andrew gerza if you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. We'd love to have you as a guest so you can shine a bright light on your disability story. If you want to support the show and get the show one day early along with ad-free versions of the show and a cool shout-out, you can head over to patreon.com slash disability after dark thanks so much for listening to the podcast shining a bright light on disability story we'll see you next time bye copyright notice 
Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020